Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Byzantine Stories Episode 5 Roman Healthcare Part 1 Choosing Your Provider So far on the Byzantine Stories series, we've covered the lives of a bishop an ascetic, a charioteer, and a historian. A doctor was definitely on the list of lives I wanted to explore. But a simple biography was never going to be enough when dealing with a subject that we're all so intimately acquainted with. Nor was a physician the only option for ill health in the ancient world. In order to do justice to Roman health care, we're going to need a three-part story. Part one is an overview of the history of Greek medicine, how it developed and what kind of treatments were on offer. Part two will move us into the Roman and then the Christian eras. How did the imperial and religious revolutions affect healthcare? Part three will take us forward to Byzantium to visit a doctor and a church finding Byzantine solutions to the ailments of the public. By the end of our series, you should have a good idea of the capabilities and limitations of the Roman medical profession, as well as many interesting snapshots of daily life. Of course, human beings have had to deal with injuries and illness since the beginning of our existence. Ancient people knew that broken bones would heal, that wounds should be bandaged, and that fevers can pass. The natural world provided many solutions to human ailments that were passed on from generation to generation. 
and there were always individuals who'd acquired specialist knowledge. Those with a fascination for what lay behind skin and bone. These self-taught doctors and surgeons were caring for their communities long before history was first written down. For our purposes, though, we must begin with the first recognisable physician in the historical record. And fortunately, you already know his name. Hippocrates was born around 460 BC. He lived in the age of Periclean Athens. He's mentioned by Plato, and he left behind a huge collection of medical writing. Thanks to that corpus, Hippocrates became known as the father of medicine, the first professional doctor to be remembered in the Western world. He was the first to commit to writing both the treatments he used and the principles which governed his behaviour. The man himself is impossible to see. We know very little about him, and the corpus bears the marks of different authors and many editors across the centuries. But the school of thought which he was a part of was to prove hugely influential, and so his name has stuck. I will continue to refer to him as if one man accomplished all of this for simplicity's sake, uh, so long as you remember the truth. In Greek mythology, the gods and goddesses toyed with their human subjects, and inflicting illness upon them was one of their powers. Crucially for the development of healthcare, Hippocrates rejected this as an explanation for sickness. This essentially separated medicine from religion, philosophy, and other disciplines. Illness could now be dealt with on its own terms. From there, the principles of clinical medicine were established. Hippocrates would get to know the patient. He would examine them, looking at their complexion, measuring their pulse, investigating their excretions. He talked to them, noting down their family history, environment, symptoms. Meticulous notes were key to diagnosis. Through this record-keeping, a doctor would begin to notice patterns or be able to measure the effectiveness of different treatments. Hippocrates also wrote about the demeanour of a doctor. In order to gain the patient's trust, you should appear professional. You should look healthy and clean. You should be appropriately dressed and amiable. You should be calm at all times, though be prepared to scold as well as comfort, depending on the patient. Alongside these basic requirements, Hippocratic medicine also made important breakthroughs in the healing process. Listening to a patient's chest is mentioned, just with the ear, no stethoscope. By shaking the patient, you could actually hear blockages. A diseased lung apparently sounds like there's leather in your chest. The methods behind surgeries were written down. A simple example is the draining of an abscess or boil. 
the surface can be punctured, and using a small lead pipe, the pus can be drained away. Other external symptoms were well understood. Hemorrhoids and polyps could be removed from the rectal area by a physician, as something the patient would be understandably unable to accomplish. Lists of approved medicines were compiled, often using natural remedies which we know can work. Extract of willow bark, for example, helps relieve pain. The bark contains salicin, a chemical similar to aspirin, and it contains flavonoids, which are anti-inflammatories. Texts by Hippocrates circulated throughout the Greek world during the Classical period. It was first compiled into one collection around 250 BC in Alexandria, and that city would remain the preeminent medical centre in the Roman world for the next millennium. But before we discuss clinical medicine further, let's just survey the alternatives. Hippocrates' work came in an urban context. The classical age of Greece was one of city-states. Doctors could visit many patients on foot and learn quickly about some ailments because their client base lived in a similar environment. The vast majority of people, though, lived in the countryside, and many of them would never have had access to a professional doctor. They would have relied on the cheaper and more common solutions nearby. A very basic level of knowledge would have been stored in the extended family. The obvious example being that women were expected to pass on knowledge of birth and childcare to their daughters while those who'd suffered injuries bringing in the harvest could share their recuperation methods with their neighbours. Everywhere, there were also superstitions which survived the centuries. Pliny the Elder recorded many examples in his Natural History. These include throwing a spear three times over the roof of the house to reduce labour pains, putting out a fire with wine to clear a fever, or kissing a mule on the nose to get rid of a cold. For persistent illness, there were two other avenues you could explore. One was a traditional healer. In its benign form, this would be someone with a wide knowledge of local plants and herbs. Beyond tree bark, ginger can act as an anti-inflammatory, garlic an antibiotic, vinegar an antiseptic. The healing properties of nature could, in the right hands, reduce pain and treat infections. In its less helpful form, we could be talking about a diviner, or the unflattering term, witch doctor. Someone who ascribed ill health to supernatural causes. The solution here might be an elaborate ritual, or the wearing of a special amulet to ward off evil spirits. Usually this kind of healer would also prescribe some natural remedy, which along with the placebo effect of the cleansing ceremony would produce helpful results. Though the opportunity to separate a gullible invalid from their money was always present. The second option for those seeking a cure was the pagan temple. 
Obviously, praying for good health was a daily routine for many. But for conditions that would not abate, the gods could be beseeched at one of their homes. In the episode on Simeon the Stylite, we saw that the Christian holy man would often occupy spaces where a pagan shrine had previously stood. The ascetic thus took on some of the same functions, including handing out medical advice. Like a doctor, the temple priest would come across people suffering similar conditions day after day. Depending on the cult, he or she might have some practical medical experience, or possess access to treatments passed down from former priests. The temple was thus a repository of wisdom that could be accessed by those coming to sacrifice. Several cults actually specialized in medical care. In the Greek world, the most well-known was that of the god Asclepius. He was one of Apollo's sons and was thought to have the power of healing. He was aided in this work by his two daughters, two of whom were Hygieia and Panacea. The temple priests were known as Therapeutae. The biggest temples of Asclepius became like health resorts. Visitors would be housed at the temple complex as they sought a cure. Many pilgrims were encouraged to incubate inside the temple itself. The idea was to sleep in a communal room within the sacred space in the hopes that Asclepius might come to you in a dream and heal you. Of course, this incubation in practice functioned like a short stay at a hospital. You would live and sleep in a clean space. There were baths on site, and the priests would now have a chance to examine you and recommend treatments, all backed by the ceremonial seriousness of the deity's presence. In this environment, perhaps you can see some of the problems faced by a newly minted professional doctor. Often our inclination is to see a man of science as more trustworthy than those peddling home remedies. But for most people in the ancient world, the doctor was the scary innovation. The priest and the healer were inheritors of either tradition or divine sanction. The doctor, by contrast, was claiming that just through study and observation he could make you better. For some, an absurdly inadequate claim. And if he offered to slice you open to cure what ailed you, doubtless the reaction was similar to those of us who first heard about laser eye surgery. This man is going to kill me. I'd rather kiss a mule, thank you very much. Worst of all, the doctor always charged a fee. This was very suspicious. What was to stop an unscrupulous quack from spending months running up the bill on treatments that did nothing? Or worse, what if they convinced a delirious patient to alter their will? The Hippocratic Oath was born in part to counter suspicion of the new medical profession. By swearing an oath of care, doctors aimed to create the same kind of trust which priests and healers enjoyed. Hippocrates' advice on how to dress and behave were written in a similar vein. 
He advised physicians not to wear expensive clothes or jewellery, as that might give the wrong impression, and don't discuss your fees at the bedside. Much of the power of priests and healers lay in their ability to predict the course of a fever or sickness. From experience, they could guess the likely outcome, and when this came to pass, their access to special knowledge was confirmed. This, too, was on the mind of Hippocrates, hence the importance of keeping accurate records. A doctor could refer to case histories and produce predictions which were just as, if not more accurate, than their competing healthcare providers. They couldn't observe passively. They had to win over their patients with the power of their prognostication. Only then would the medical establishment earn the money and prestige that would allow for the survival and development of the field. So, what kind of treatments were being offered by Hippocratic doctors? In order to answer that, you need to know about the general theory of illness which the Hippocratic school developed. You've probably heard of it as the theory of the four humours. Without any knowledge of bacteria and their role in infection, Greek thinkers instead looked to philosophy for an explanation for sickness. Just as the world was seen as a balance of elements, so the body was thought of as needing to maintain harmony in order to be healthy. There is a basic logic to this. If you exercise too much, you can hurt yourself. If you rest too much, you can also do damage. Too much sun, too much stress, too much food, all have consequences and can be balanced out. The theory developed, though, to explain more serious conditions by pointing to the balance of liquids within the body. Those being blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. These substances were produced to excess by the aggravation of one of the body's humours. There's a lot of detail one could go into with this theory, but let's keep things simple. Again, on the surface, this seems to tally with the human experience of ill health. For someone suffering from, say, food poisoning or the flu, the idea that your body had too much bad fluid built up would seem to make sense. And once you've got rid of the excess, you feel better. Similarly, a cold can be treated by keeping a patient warm, a swelling by draining the excess blood away, Balancing out the body's liquids had an intuitive appeal. This theory was born in the intellectual atmosphere of classical Greece, the belief that earth, fire, water and air were the constituent elements of life, led straight to blood, phlegm, black and yellow bile. And it wasn't that Hippocrates wrote a theory on a blackboard and then made the body's ailments match it, it's just that when he tried to bring his knowledge of illness into one hypothesis, this is where his education led him. If you think about it, 
the four humours is exactly the sort of theory one would come up with if you weren't able to see inside the body. Thanks to textbooks and plastic skeletons, we're pretty familiar with the makeup of the anatomy. But Hippocrates was far more constrained. Autopsies were taboo in Greco-Roman culture, and even those who took a peek could never see the living system working. Surgeons knew where major organs and arteries lay, but the complex systems operating around them were a mystery. Without an intimate knowledge of biology, what would a physician be able to study? Well, the fluids which the body produced would be an obvious place to start, particularly as they were always involved with ill health. Your BC trip to the doctors, then, would involve an attempt to realign your humours. This would often mean a program of exercise, diet and bathing, much of which was common sense. However, the ancient understanding of food was not always helpful. There tended to be too much credit given to meat and an unwarranted suspicion of fruit. Food was an area of particular concern because it was believed that the putrefying residues of food inside your stomach let off noxious gases and led to illness. If you were really sick, then the bad bile needed to be ejected from the body. Doctors had a variety of emetics and enemas which could purge you, and a wide array of herbal remedies which could bring on cooling or heating of the body, which was thought to help balance you out. Chamomile was on the pleasant end of this spectrum with its anti-inflammatory properties while actual soil from sacred hills and animal dung were involved in less appealing recipes. Hippocratic doctors also tended to be fans of venesection, or bloodletting. This might be helpful in the case of a swelling, but it was often recommended as a general treatment to reduce the supposed excess of blood. Often, this did little more than weaken the patient. Beyond the humours, there were practical treatments which could do good. Uh, Pliny recommends taking fern to treat intestinal worms, uh, which does work. He also mentions the ephedra plant, which can help stop hemorrhages and treat asthma. Honey was known to cure some ailments, though without understanding its antibacterial activities, while rubbing oil or fat on sore areas of skin can soothe irritation. In general, then, doctors could treat symptoms rather than the underlying condition. They could provide comfort and common sense to patients, but for most conditions, the immune system was doing the lion's share of the work. What about surgery, though? Obviously, humans had needed bone setting long before Hippocrates, and certainly a skilled physician would know the basics of this, uh, though the evidence from the wonky repairs visible on ancient skeletons suggests that this was not a common skill, or that most broken bones were simply dealt with at home. The Hippocratic corpus does contain instructions on breaks, fractures and dislocations, as well as a series of other operations. Visible problems could generally be attacked, 
So we hear of rotten teeth being pulled out, or ulcers, or hernias being cut out. Gangrenous limbs could be amputated, uh, while delicate tools could be used to remove cataracts. Even goiters were cut out, but the laryngeal nerves were usually damaged so that the patient could no longer speak. These procedures were, of course, incredibly painful and were part of well-worn anti-medical jibes about doctors doing more harm than good. Nothing approaching modern anaesthetics were available. However, patients took anything they could to ease the pain, including alcohol, hemlock, henbane and mandrake juice, as well as opium, amongst many other concoctions. Surgery was very much a last resort. Aside from the pain, surgeons knew that bleeding was difficult to stop, or that the body could just go into shock. And yet, various operations were commonly performed which sound very risky to modern ears. One witness describes a patient with serious ulceration and gangrene in his crotch, the physicians excised the diseased flesh, applied bandages, inserted a lead tube so he could pass water, and the man recovered and lived for another 18 years. We hear of the draining of the lungs of a patient with pneumonia. We hear of an emergency tracheotomy. And perhaps best known amongst unusual surgeries was trepanning, or trephination. This saw a surgeon drill or cut into a patient's skull in order to relieve pressure on the brain, usually performed on someone who'd suffered a serious head injury. Uh, you can see a dramatized version of this on the website right now. It comes from HBO's Rome series. An amazing anecdote about this procedure comes to us from skeletons found at Pompeii. In the upper layers of the excavation, actual bones survived. On one of these victims, it's been shown that a woman was suffering from a condition we now know as hyperostosis frontalis interna. This is a thickening of the inner side of the frontal bone of the skull. It's usually found in postmenopausal women and is usually painless. However, it has been known to cause headaches, and on this particular skeleton, trepanning had been performed. It seems entirely possible that this poor woman, afflicted with sudden migraines, turned to her doctor, who cut into her skull to relieve the pain. Unfortunately, this would have had no effect on her condition Wounds were sealed through cauterization. This usually involved heating a metal tool and then applying it to the skin. Again, intensely painful, but effective at closing incisions. On top of all the perils of ancient surgery, infection always lurked. Human beings have long understood this. Hunter-gatherers would have noticed that cuts could turn nasty if they weren't kept clean. And Greek surgeons had various methods to handle this, treating wounds with honey, lint, vinegar and alcohol. 
But despite the knowledge of where infection might spring up, the ignorance of the root cause still led to problems. Infectious microorganisms lurked on every surface, in the water and food being served to the patient, and on every hand that touched them, including the surgeon himself. Tools, which were used for multiple operations, were rarely disinfected. So any time surgery took place, the patient was entering a bacterial lottery. Even if the procedure was successful, they might catch something terminal during their recovery. Some doctors attempted to find a surefire way of preventing these infections, experimenting with copper acetate, lead oxide, and even mercury. Of course, it was then also discovered that these could be poisonous, depending on the dose. I imagine you've never been so grateful to be born when you were. It wasn't until the 1940s that antibiotics were as widely available as we take for granted today. In her book Greek and Roman Medicine, Helen King comments that it wasn't until then, the 1940s, that visiting a doctor would definitely improve your chances of survival. But just because of the slender resources available to ancient physicians doesn't mean that they didn't serve an important function. They offered hope, comfort, and care, and they did get closer to the truth about human illness than the priests and healers. But why didn't they get closer? Why did the theory of the four humours last well into the 16 and 1700s? For that answer, we need to visit the Eternal City. On the next episode in our series, we travel to Rome and meet the finest doctor the Empire had to offer. And we then move into the Christian era to see how healthcare developed under the influence of the true philosophy. Part 2 is available to buy right now at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. It costs $7, as does part three, when we move into the Byzantine era. As usual, that amount, $7, and any donation you care to add, go toward keeping the podcast going. If you've already subscribed to the show, then these episodes will appear automatically in your feed. At the very top of the website is a page called Sale Instructions. Go there for more information. And thanks for your support. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 